You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Some of you know that I um, recently, my family and I recently moved into a new home. And one of the things that we spent some time doing in moving to our new home was building IKEA furniture. How many of you have ever built IKEA furniture? <laughs> so it's a task. And sometimes you get a piece of IKEA furniture that's not one of your simple run in the mill, you know, put the peg here and you slide the rod there, whatever. You get a piece of furniture like a day bed, which came in like three sets. You know, sometimes IKEA furniture comes in like one flat box and you carry it home. And you're, you're walking home, you're very excited because you're like, I'm going to build this piece of IKEA furniture. A, a day bed from IKEA is three boxes of IKEA pieces from IKEA. You pull out the package and the nuts and bolts, there are like eight packages of nuts and bolts. I mean, it's like an ordeal. And you open the instruction manual for this thing. And there are two pictures in the instruction manual, okay? The first is a picture of one person with some tools and broken pieces of furniture in front of him with a big X on it. The second picture is a picture of two people building, uh, in the process of building a beautiful piece of furniture, smiling and happy, and that one has no X on it meaning to indicate that one of these things is the thing that you should try to emulate and do, and the other is the thing that you should not try to emulate and do. Okay, some people don't pay attention to that first page. You see it, so they start building a piece of furniture by themselves, and they end up like the person with the frowning face and the broken furniture. So I'm telling you, if you ever build a piece of IKEA furniture that's complicated, pay attention to those two pictures that are at the beginning of the uh, instruction booklet. But I thought about that, in the context, maybe not surprisingly, of Torah. Because sometimes the Torah offers a window into the kinds of behaviors, activities, characteristics, traits that we're supposed to emulate. And sometimes it provides us a window, it provides us a picture of the kind of activities, the kind of behaviors, the kind of qualities that we are specifically not supposed to emulate. It doesn't always give a disclaimer to one or the other, but you can often determine which one is which by the outcome of the story. So, for example, we learn that Moses has a tremendous amount of humility and he cares tremendously for the Jewish people. And so when the Jewish people build the golden calf in the wilderness, God is very angry with the, with the people, wants to destroy them all. And Moses begs and pleads before God not to destroy the people. And God's response is, God said, I have forgiven as you have asked. That's the result. So you know that that's a picture without an X on it, right? Fight for the people who you are caring for, who you're leading. Be humble and forgiving. In our Torah portion this week, we're given another picture, another window, that I think because of the outcome of the story, you know it has an X over it. This is a picture of something that you are not supposed to emulate. 
So what is it? The Torah portion this week is Parashat Toldot. Toldot tells the story of Isaac and Rebekah who have trouble getting pregnant and then as many people in the Bible do and then finally, miraculously, Rebekah gets pregnant and has a tumultuous pregnancy. She doesn't realize that she is carrying twins. And so she inquires of God about what's happening to her. And God says back to her this somewhat cryptic prophecy. Vayomer Adonai la, shnei goyim bevitnech, ushnei leumim nema'ayich yiparedu, ule'om yil'om ye'emats, all right, I'm going to read this the way it's normally translated, although it's important to point out that this passage comes as poetry. And poetry is notoriously hard to decipher exactly what it means. But let's say it means what most people take it to mean, which is this. Two nations are in your womb. Two separate peoples shall issue from your body. One people shall be mightier than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And lo and behold, Rebecca gives birth and realizes that she in fact does have twins. The first to come out is a red-haired little scamp that she names Esau. Esau. And the second is holding on to the ankle of the brother, and she names him Yaakov, which means ankle grabber. Imagine that your name was, uh, it was, was the description of maybe your worst characteristic or the least uh, part of you. But anyway, they have two children, Esau and Yaakov. And we read further after the children are born. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the outdoors, but Jacob was a mild man who stayed in camp. Isaac favored Esau because he had a taste for game. And Esau, as we just learned, was a hunter, so he brought game to Isaac. But Rebekah favored Jacob. So what's happening here, what's the image, what's the picture of parenting that the Torah is setting up as an example of what not to emulate? It's not only the issue of picking a parent's and the trope that gets picked up on saying, okay, parents, don't pick favorites among your kids. But I think that's not the deepest thing that's going on here. The deepest thing that's going on here is that Rebecca gets this somewhat cryptic prophecy about what's happening inside of her womb. And she uses that prophecy to influence and control and guide the life of one of her children at the expense of the other. She wants one child to conform to her picture of what the world is supposed to look like. Now, one of the problems with it, as I just mentioned before, is that the prophecy, I think, is a little bit opaque. We don't know exactly what that prophecy is saying. It's possible when it says that harav ya'avod et it doesn't necessarily mean that the older will serve the younger. It could mean that the greater will serve the lesser. And that doesn't necessarily have to do anything with age. And then the rest of the prophecy that there are two nations in the womb and they're going to struggle. 
That doesn't necessarily pick the winner or loser, but Rebecca interprets it. God gives no interpretation. And Rebecca, by the way, doesn't tell Isaac what this prophecy is, but there's no interpretation of it. Rebecca, Rebecca assumes a particular meaning of this prophecy, how the world is supposed to look. And so she uses every ounce of coercive control she has, as we read later in the story, to influence a particular outcome, to have her son Jacob grow up to be the picture of what she had for him before he was born. And conversely, Azov also is the picture of what she, was, what she wanted for him or what she thought was supposed to be about him before he was born. And as we read this saga of Jacob and Esau in this Torah portion and in the Torah portions to come, what you realize is the amount of anguish and pain and suffering that happens in the lives of everybody in the drama as a result of the parents trying to dictate how their kids turn out based on their preconceived worldview of how they ought to be. Instead of embracing the kids for who they were and seeing how things developed. Because it could very well have also been that Rebecca read the prophecy correctly and she could have not picked favorites in the story and raised Jacob in a particular way and the prophecy still could have come out, turned out the way she interpreted it it to be. And the failure in the story, the pain in the story, why it turns out badly, why we actually see an X over it, is not because Rebecca reads this prophecy in a certain way, it's because Rebecca tries to force her kids to conform to the outcome of it. And so many of us do this. I talk to parents all the time. Here's one that comes out a lot. Okay, and it's one that a lot of people don't think of, and my answer to people surprises them. Okay, so people come to me and they say, Rabbi, I'm you know, very upset. Why is my kid not interested in Judaism? The way I'm interested in Judaism. And I say to them, okay, so describe what that looks like, and usually what that looks like is they are just not interested, just not, they're not, they don't go to synagogue, they don't belong to synagogue, Jewish activities are, don't really speak to them, their social circle isn't Jewish, they don't get a lot out of uh, Jewish rituals at home. They say to them, okay, well let's see, what would happen if it were the opposite scenario? What if your kids loved Judaism so much that they actually became ultra-Orthodox and joined a Hasidic community? And the parents say to me, whoa, 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 you know, I want them to be Jewish, but not crazy. Right? I want them to be Jewish like me. And then I ask them another scenario. Let's say they observe all of Jewish rituals exactly like you do. They do Shabbat the way you do, they keep kosher the way you do, they go to synagogue the amount that you do, which often is actually not all that much for the parents that I'm talking to. That's a whole other story. They do everything exactly like you do, but they're real jerks. They haven't internalized the ethical message of Judaism. What would you say to that? And the parents say, well, I don't want them to be like that. I want them to do Judaism the way I do it, and also be a good person the way I envision what being a good person is. They say to them, what if they're a really good person the way, and have the same values that you and your 
family have, but Judaism wasn't for them, and they went and joined an ashram, or became Buddhist, or Catholic. How would you feel about that? And they say, no, 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 that's not the way I want it either. We do this so often, that is just one manifestation of this thing that we parents do so often to our children. We want them to conform to a particular box that usually reflects who we are, but not necessarily who they are. And the outcome of it, very often, not always, but very often, is a tremendous amount of pain and suffering for the child, but also for the parents, for the whole family, because nobody feels like they're living up to either person's expectation, and everybody there feels squeezed and crushed. But it's not just something that parents do. We do this to our spouses. We do this to our friends. We do this to our co-workers. We do this to the person driving next to us on the street who isn't driving the way exactly we want them to drive when we want them to drive. We want everybody in our world to conform to the particular picture, the particular box that we want them or need them to fill in our lives. And the truth is, nobody fills the box that you want them to fill. Everybody is their own box. And so much suffering could be resolved if we were willing to let people be who they are and either embrace them or not embrace them for who they are rather than who we want them to be. And it happens to us in our lives. We experience this all the time in our lives. I just was uh, reading this article that was mind-altering to me because it said, when you go to sit down to do email, set your timer to only do 15 minutes of email at a time. And don't do email the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning. Wait at least an hour until you do it. Why? Because if you do email right away, and if you spend more than a 15-minute block of time doing email later in the day, what happens is you become a slave to what other people want you to be doing, not necessarily what you need to be doing or what would be most helpful or productive in your day. You become a, prod, a, 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 a project of somebody else's demands on you. Your boss, your family, your friends, whoever it is. Now, sometimes you can't avoid it. We live in a world where we're always tethered to our email, or we're always tethered. There are, there are certain reasonable expectations that people have on us. If you're a parent, there's a reasonable expectation that your child has to support and care for them, etc. If you're uh, an employee, there's a reasonable expectation that your employer has that you work the contracted amount of time and the uh, uh, you get the certain tasks done, etc., etc., etc. But there's a way in which the relationships in our lives, both those that impact us and that we impact on other people, go above and beyond what's healthy and required. We would end so much suffering in our lives and in the lives of the people around us if we stopped making them conform to the boxes that we set up for them. And if we stopped pushing ourselves to conform to the boxes that other people set up for us. That's why ultimately I think the Jewish tradition gives us the gift of Shabbat. It's a day of 
release, a day of renewal, a day to step outside of the normal boxes of our day-to-day -day life, the ones we set up for others and that others set up for us, and just be us and let other people be there in the hopes that the picture of the world in that 24-hour love can become